If you have any topic suggestions that you'd like to hear more about or questions that you're hoping that we could maybe address on a future podcast, you can click the Get in Touch box right on our website at ktsmoneymatters.com. And the Hardworking Woman's Guide to Money, available either on our website, KT's Money Matters, or on Amazon. Or of course, you can find our link in the show notes. Working with your investments, retirement, insurance, estate or tax planning, or just dealing with everyday expenses, your money matters. Let KT Thomas help you make the most of it. This is KT's Money Matters. Hey there, and welcome back. This is KT at KT's Money Matters, coming to you with your tips and quips and ideas about making money, saving money, spending money, investing money. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about tiny houses. Tiny houses, you ask. What are those? Well, here's what I'll say to you. It's really interesting. Trends come and trends go. Whether we're talking about tiny houses or the idea of downsizing this minimalist trend and what that means to money, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. What you need to know, what you need to watch out for, and how you might make it work for you. This and more after the break. Hey, Money Matters community, KT here. I could use a little help. And I'm hoping that maybe you, my regular listener, would be willing to give me a little bit of feedback. I've been running the show now for more than 110 episodes. I'm trying to figure out how best to grow my audience and keep it fresh and interesting for those that are tapped into the Money Matter community. How can you get this feedback to me? Well, there are a number of ways. First, you could go to ktsmoneymatters.com and you could complete a questionnaire. This would be great if you are interested in sharing talk ideas or shows that you'd be interested in learning more about in the future. Or you could rate and review my show wherever you listen to your podcasts. But most importantly, if you happen to listen to your podcasts on Apple, taking just a minute to rate and review my show really helps boost my listenership. I appreciate the fact that you listen to my show on a regular basis and that this is an ask that I have for you to help me. Hopefully you'll take a few minutes, rate and review my show and give me some feedback. And remember, you can always send me an email right off of the KT's Money Matters website. I appreciate your feedback. And now back to the show. Hey, thanks for holding on during the break. You know, I used to be on a talk radio show in Boston and WRKO, and I can remember it was live call in talk radio, which I really loved this idea that people called up and asked questions and it was like, shoot from the hip, come up with the idea. What was it? What's it mean? And this was during the 2000s. This was during what we used to call the decade of the McMansion. People were building these enormous homes, huge square footage, rooms they never went in. Every kid has their own bathroom. Then there's a study for me, the study for the mister. And all together now, thousands and thousands of square feet that you couldn't buy enough furniture to even complete. They were like castles that we built in honor of ourselves trophies to show how successful we had become. And I can remember the more and more of these got built, 
my old partner and I, Bruce Warner, we would debate back and forth how soon the death of the McMansion would take. And then what would happen to all those properties when people got ready to retire? Started thinking about downsizing. Would anybody ever want to buy them again? And so that trend died somewhere between 2006 and 2012 was the end of the McMansion. The market fell apart in real estate where prices crashed, depending upon the area, 20, 30, 40% by the time it was all done. It aligned with a stock market crash, which took stock prices down 45%. During the same time, fuel spiked, unemployment spiked, and people stopped building. Young people were in college, and a lot of other people went back to college during the Obama administration because there were no jobs and they were said, go to college, get more education, and you too can get a better job when you get out. Meanwhile, the economy started coming back. Unemployment started falling. People started coming out of college and into the workforce. What they found was, holy smoke, I owe a lot of money and I'm not making that much. I'm going to stay here with the rents. Mom and dad, I'm going to hang out, see if I can't stay here for a while, maybe years, till I'm ready to get out on my own. Now, what's happened is people of that generation, I'm talking about the millennials here, who've been now out of college a little while, have been in the workforce a while, are renting apartments, are not buying homes at the rate with which the generation before them did, are fairly skeptical about the idea of the American homeowner dream. And what's come out of this is the breakout of the tiny homes. Now, no hot trend would be possible without a reality show. Here I'm talking about tiny house hunters or tiny house nation. I'll tell you what, you go in and you Google tiny houses and there are a million pictures of beautiful spreads of tiny little portable houses. Now, these aren't McMansions, but these are like McCosey Cubes. They are lovely. They are smart. They are energy efficient. Many have solar. They are lovely little spaces where you feel nestled and a little crowded, just depends upon how you see it. I might feel a little crowded. These little houses allow people to own it. Of course, you know, it's not like owning a home home, but it's a home on wheels. You could move it. So unlike a home where if you got a job and ended up in a different part of the community or a different part of the country, you could actually take your little home with you. Now, you got to be careful about this because tiny homes have funny rules. And every state has their own little rule about what they see a tiny house as. Some see it as like a trailer. Some see it as like a home. So where you can go with it and what you can do with it varies state to state. One of the things I really like about the tiny house is the tiny house Airbnb. This is kind of how I started this. I was out for a run. I'm down in Florida for the getaway from the winter. And I'm out for a run with my dog. And we run by these little tiny houses. And there's nobody living there. They are little 
Airbnb rental properties. And I'm like, that is a cool idea because an Airbnb, go stay someplace that you've never been before. Go get a little place where you're all by yourself. Go get a place that might be dog friendly. If you're on vacation, you don't need a lot of space because you're just using it like a hotel room, but it's cheaper because you can buy food and have food there, even though maybe not a lot of food, but still, you know, better than the Holiday Inn. You got privacy and you can get one kind of close to the beach. So I thought, what a cool idea. And I started thinking, what are these tiny houses all about? Because I don't know if you figured it out yet, but I'm actually not a millennial. I'm one of those baby boomers that's on the other side thinking, is it time to downsize? But more about that later. So the thing about the tiny house is per square foot, you're spending a lot for the space that you have. In fact, the tiny house sells for significantly more than, say, a brand new trailer of about the same size. Why is that? You can tow a trailer too. Well, a long time ago, people made it socially a downgrade to be in a trailer park. In fact, people go, oh, I could never be in a trailer park. Or I'm sure any of you have heard them throw around trailer trash, but you never hear anybody call the tiny house people trailer trash. So is this a status thing to have a tiny house, say versus a brand new trailer that actually has a nice bed in it and everything you might want and places to put your stuff? I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, the cachet of the tiny house and what people are willing to pay to have the tiny house, say, versus the travel trailer, which is about the same size, except the walls slide out. So you could have a little bit more space in size. Either way, however you decide to live small, what you need to know, my first house was a tiny house not by your standard, but like by mine. It was a camp. It had been like a little fish camp that had been renovated into a year-round house. I bought this house in the 80s. When I say small, I mean one bedroom small. It was a little house. I actually was pretty content there too. But eventually what happens is you think you're supposed to have a bigger house and a better house and a better house. So for those of you that don't want a super teeny tiny house, you could decide to buy a little ranch. It's not, do I buy a teeny house or a two-car garage? There are so many houses in the middle. There may be, they don't have as much cachet, but you could really save a lot of money by deciding to buy a smaller home of any kind. So the tiny houses are very cute, but a lot of things are cute. What do you get? The most important thing you get is the ability to have little or no debt. And whatever debt you get for the tiny house, you can pay off fairly quickly because you're not paying rent unless you're renting the land. But again, that's not that much. But the other thing you get, and this is the thing people don't think about, when you have a small property, you don't have a lot of room. So you don't buy a lot of stuff. Now, some of you out there are three steps and they're like, you just rent a storage facility. But listen, let me just tell you, if you're renting a storage facility, you have missed the entire point of the minimalist perspective here. It's not buy another place to hold my stuff so that I can live in a box. It's live with less, less stuff, less noise, 
less space. So if you're thinking tiny house, buy a storage facility, you need to know you're not ready. Buy a small house and take all your stuff home. If you're thinking tiny house, because I want something really cute and adorable, but I don't want to be in a trailer park. Okay. You could have bought a lot, put your trailer on it in many states. You could build your own tiny house, or you could have somebody else build a tiny house for you. Frankly, purchase prices of some of the tiny houses can go for as much as $130,000. I want you to know that you could buy four brand new trailers or three brand new trailers of about the same size for that price. Or you could build your own for about 20 grand. Now there's actual price, but of course you have to be willing to do construction. Not everybody knows how to do that. You know, I heard a really interesting idea when I was researching tiny houses. And this is for all of you ladies out there that want a she shed or a writing room. Sometimes I'd love a writing room, a quiet place that I could go and work that isn't really attached to the house where I could work on my next book or work on my podcasts or doodle and have complete privacy. You could buy one of these little tiny houses and put it right on your land if you have it and use it as a really amazing she shed. But now we're growing, not shrinking, just throwing it out there. Something I was thinking about. So although it seems like panacea financially, there are problems. One, zoning laws. Every state has their own rules. The second, compost toilets. If you don't have outside plumbing to hook up to, then you have to handle that. There's also a lot more wear and tear because you're using the same draw, the same door all the time. So things wear down quicker. It's really easy to clean, but if you don't keep it clean, it's a mess. And then, of course, no storage. So you kind of got to just be ready to have that kind of a lifestyle. Is this a trend I think will last? I don't know. One of the questions that nobody's been able to answer yet is what is the chance for the resale value of your tiny house to be worth anywhere near what you paid for it? Part of it is because the trend is so new that there really haven't been a lot of turnovers. But you've got to go into this understanding that it's a good thing you didn't spend a lot because you might not be able to sell it for a lot. So when you're thinking about building your tiny Taj Mahal with the very best stuff in it, you want to be careful to think about, will I be able to live in this tiny house for a really long time so it doesn't matter? Or will I be able to sell this tiny house and get my money back out of it? Because remember, it's really important to manage your cash flow and a smaller house or a tiny house could be a great way to do it. But you also have to be willing to preserve the investment that you made to do it. I'm going to flip switches here. We're going to leave the young, although, you know, I do love the millennials. And we're going to go on and we're going to talk about the baby boomers, the coming into retirement, the pre-retirement. They want to be tiny too but not like tiny houses. They just want to be a little bit less. When I first became an advisor back in the 90s, one of the regular things that we used to talk about in people's financial planning is would they stay where they're living now in retirement or would they change where they live to make it either more logistically reasonable for a retiree, like maybe first floor living, or would they move to a different location if they didn't have to commute to work all the time? And would there be, from a planning perspective, any savings associated with that? Meaning, would they 
sell their big house and buy a smaller house. And therefore they'd have some money left over to add to their retirement funds. Over the years, I've kind of gotten away from talking to people about the idea that they would downsize and have that extra money because frankly, I just found out it really didn't work. People might downsize, but one of the things they did when they were downsizing their yardage is they were upsizing their standard of living. Here I'm talking about retirement communities, being on a golf course, senior living, a brand new home versus their older home. So if you're going to sell your old place that you know needs a new $25,000 kitchen and you're going to buy a brand new home that's smaller with a $40,000 kitchen, guess what? You're probably not going to save a lot of money. Now, once I stopped believing that my clients were really going to downsize and free up cash, we started getting more realistic about how much money they would need to live their whole life and how much extra savings they would need to maintain their lifestyle that might not shrink, but it might actually grow. If you move to a condominium or a retirement community or the 55 plus community, you can expect higher expenses. That's right. Someone's cutting your grass, watering the lawn, keeping up the flowers, picking up the trash, blah, blah, blah. You name it. All those things that happen in a 55 plus community. And then of course, being surrounded by people just like you, that can cost money. You know, it's funny. A friend of mine is in the place, I think about the original 55 plus community where they took it on steroids, the villages of Florida. The villages are so big that you can Google it and see it on a map. It's You can find it on GPS in your car. It's huge. Think about how brilliant this might be. It's swampland. And then somebody goes, I know we could build multiple communities for 55 plus. We could continue to build as we sold, creating bigger and better houses. They all kind of look the same. So it's not hard to manage it. Small footprints, so not a lot of grass. We could put lots and lots of amenities that people could pay for, including golf and tennis and restaurants and shopping. And they would never have to even leave the villages if they didn't want to. The villages is like a town for senior citizens. Imagine having that vision before you built the villages. Now, I spent the night there with some friends of mine. And the next morning I went out and I rode my bike, making sure I stayed on the golf cart paths. You know how that goes. Better safe than dead. Riding my bike around, you know what I saw? Community after community after community. The houses of that community were all similar, or shall I say, kind of like all the same. Then you'd ride by another entrance and it would be another part of the villages and all the houses would look like the other houses in that part. This place has just become the retiree capital of the world now. No one wants to spend winters in the cold and they just run to Florida, to the villages in the center of the state, hours away from the ocean. Prices aren't that bad, but of course you're hours away from the ocean, but you're out of the cold and you can golf like every day. So if you're a golfer, lots and lots of golfing. If you're an eater, lots of restaurants. These places aren't cheap. Everything that you do costs more. What you need to understand is that if your idea of downsizing is to get out of the bigger house and go to a place where you can buy more stuff, meaning more things you might need like resources, it's not going to come cheap. So you might be downsizing your square footage 
but you're not downsizing your life. In fact, like I said, you might be jumbo sizing it. After the 55 plus, the next jump is to retirement properties. Now, these retirement communities are structured to be your last known mailing address. They popped up a lot as baby boomers started to age, creating a place, mostly in the beginning for the more wealthy to be able to sell their home, buy a home in a retirement community, pay rent, and access services. This was a definite jumbo sizing of expenses because the costs can run anywhere from $1,000 a month to $5,000 a month. Now, remember, you go into a place like this when you're still fundamentally independent, meaning you're living in your own unit by yourself. Often, you're living in a standalone home. But you're getting services like house cleaning and transportation and maybe meals every day, and you're getting some personal care as you need it. And then they have all of these a la carte services that you can access as you need more care. The idea of these places is nobody wants to be separated from the person they've spent their whole life with. A husband and a wife can live in a place like this really for almost the rest of their lives. And then most of them have some kind of long-term care option, usually right on the property, so that if we get to a place where one really needs around-the-clock medical care or a memory unit, they would be able to get those and then the spouse would still be on the property and they could see them all the time. So the idea of not being separated. The trick of this is you pay a lot for the right to be in the right neighborhood for when you need more. So it might be downsizing your closets, but again, it's jumbo sizing your expenses. You want to make sure we have plenty of cash to pay for this. And you need to know that a move like this might change your ability to travel because you'll spend more on living and you know what they say about house poor. If my home expenses are too expensive, then all my vacations are at home. So I'm going to give you one last thing to think about. How much is too much? How do you know when you are house poor? Well, you know you're house poor when you don't have any money to spend money on anywhere else and all your vacations are at home or staycations, which is the trendy version of, I can't afford to travel anywhere. Now, financial professionals will define it as you can't afford to be anywhere that is more than 25% of your gross income. So let's say I make $5,000 a month or $60,000 a year. 25% of $5,000 a month is $1,250. That says to me that if my housing expenses are more than $1,250 a month, then it's probably going to keep me from doing other things like saving to buy my first home or any kind of home improvements I might need to do or save for retirement or save for my kid's college. Now, as your income grows, the amount you can spend obviously grows with that. But there's a really good rule of thumb for thinking about what you should spend if you're buying a home. Now, for first-time home buyers, this is really difficult. What's the maximum that you should spend? Well, a rule of thumb is two and a half times your annual salary. So let's say you're making $100,000 a year. Two and a half times that would be $250,000. That should be the maximum amount of house purchase that you buy 
when your income is $100,000. Now, once in a while, you'll find a bank that's willing to lend you ridiculous amounts of money. Some will lend you up to 28 to 33% of your income, but you want to think about 25% of your gross income. Otherwise, every vacation is a staycation. Consider right-sizing your housing to meet your income, not the other way around. And to the tiny house people, I wish you good luck. If you have got a story where you're living in a tiny house and you've been successful doing that, I would love to interview you for my show. Please take a minute and go to ktsmoneymatters.com, fill out the form so that I can contact you. I'm really fascinated to see how people live their lives differently and how they plan them. So if you have something interesting you'd like to share for me on the show, feel free to jump in and give me a holler until we speak again. Thanks for listening to KT's Money Matters with KT Thomas. For more information, past episodes, and show notes, go to www.ktsmoneymatterspodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and recommend it at iTunes, Overcast, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.